This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Stay tuned for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Carl Truman. And uh, today, we are delighted to have a special guest with us, uh, Todd Billings, who is um, the author of a wonderful new book um, that I've, I've been really enjoying uh, digging into. It's called uh, The End of the Christian Life. How Embracing Our Mortality Frees Us to Truly Live. Uh, Dr. Billings is a professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary, which is in Holland, Michigan. He is also author of Rejoicing and Lament from several years ago, and Todd was with us um, to talk about that book when it came out. Now, uh, that book uh, is, is more of a a theological and biographical reflection uh, that he provides us. And it's a wonderful, wonderful meditation on um, suffering uh, in this life as Christians. And uh, this book is different, though related, in terms of the fact uh, that Todd helps us deal with the reality of death, or or as the the Puritans would say, uh, memento mori, or think about your mortality, think about your death. Uh, Todd, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. It's great to be with you and be back with you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So kind of tell us a little bit about where this book comes from, the why behind uh, this this book. Why is it, and for for our audience who, who may not be aware of your story, tell us a little bit about the place in your own life where this book comes from. Yeah. So in 2012, I was diagnosed with an incurable um, cancer that if nothing else does, will, will take my life. It's a terminal cancer um, with pretty unpredictable prognosis um, connected with it. And um, it was at that time I wrote the Rejoicing and Lament book, which, as you mentioned, brings readers through certain parts of the first year of the cancer diagnosis and treatment process, but really as a biblical exploration of like how our fragmented and broken stories fit into the much greater and grander story of the triune God in Christ and how both rejoicing and lamenting um, are, are part of walking that road. In some ways, the origin of this book actually came from um, pastors coming back to me who I had taught in seminary. And I would ask them every year, 
what's your biggest challenge in ministry, especially that relates to theology, um, Mm -hmm. theology and practice, since I'm a theology nerd. So Mm -hmm. again and again, they said death, dying, walking with the dying. A fair number of these students, you know, when they took their first congregation, were in their mid-20s. They had maybe been to one or two funerals, maybe none. And then they are presiding at 12 to 14 funerals a year. Yeah. So it was a combination of that. And then my curiosity as a member of the cancer community, I guess you could Mm -hmm. say, and seeing a lot of things differently, both in my experiences with other cancer patients, but then I became really curious, like how do people change when they receive, sociologically speaking, when they receive a cancer diagnosis? And, you know, one of the things is they pray more, actually, (laughs) and they become more religious and um, some of those things. And so it was a combination of those those dynamics um, where as a cancer patient, as a father, you know, I'm trying to think of how do I introduce my kids, my young kids to the reality of mortality in our culture, which is so often death denying that death just happens to other people. How do we think through congregations in terms of this is one of the last places like in Western culture where the young and the dying get together in one community. I mean, it's an incredible opportunity. And yet um, the church often has um, done its best to sort of follow the culture and avoiding speaking about death and dying and that all of us are mortal. So it's kind of a weaving together of these strands, I think, which is at the origin. So um, yeah, it was out of a concern for my former students who are pastors. It was uh, trying to make sense of, how to teach my children about death as a parent with terminal cancer. And, and then just a lot of big theological, biblical theological questions. And so that ends up giving some of the storyline of the book. Thinking, Todd, you mentioned early on in the book, you mentioned Charles Taylor's Secular Age. I'm just actually teaching a course on that at Grove City at the moment. And Hmm. one of the things that Taylor flags up as a hallmark of the secular age is is the way that death is is pushed to the boundaries, is pushed to the periphery. Uh, Not simply intellectually, of course, but behaviorally as well. People go to hospices or hospitals to die. Graveyards, uh, if they exist at all because of the rise in cremation, are detached from places we go to to do other things. How can the church in that kind of culture, you know, I'd go back three, four hundred years, I'd probably have gone to worship by walking past the graves of ancestors, loved ones, siblings maybe, maybe even a child of mine. Death would have been very, very geographically real. Mm-hmm. How can the church in, in a culture that has shoved death so far to the periphery, uh, it, it it can't be enough just to teach about death. It was what I'm saying. How do we sort of liturgically embody that or architecturally embody it or, or something? That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, Carl, you've thought a lot about <laughs> these things too. So maybe I'll present an idea or two. And if you have some suggestions as well, I mean, one of the things that I found was just on a concrete level, we need to make the most of 
the opportunity that we have dying people in our congregations. And uh, this is something that like single generation churches, if they're all millennial or that sort of thing, that's a, that's, that's a huge loss, actually. I've had students who have said, yeah, I've been a pastor here five years and haven't had a single funeral. And I start asking about their congregation and, you know, wow. they don't have anyone over 60. Wow. But, um, and I think you're actually missing something important about the gospel witness there. But some of concretely what I started to do even with my kids was to um, visit older people in the congregation, especially those who didn't have family nearby. Um, some of them are homebound. And so they are in institutions. They are out of sight, but still have connections to the congregation. So, you know, a lot of congregations have a congregational care minister or elder. And so that's who I ask. It's like, I want to be in, in service to those who are dying, but also to learn from them. And I want my kids to be around them. And so when we did that, one thing, it actually makes it really easy to have those visits in some ways because folks who are dying love kids. I mean, the kids are such a gift. Um, but then also, you know, just actually making a funeral a congregational service again. So, I mean, I think people thought it was kind of odd, but I would pull the kids out of school to go to the funeral of someone in our congregation, especially if we had been visiting them, had a connection there. I think there's a lot that can be said about the funeral service, which has become kind of a, almost a spinoff of like the wedding service that has become about, you know, king and queen for a day, as opposed to, you know, something for the congregation. Memorial services have often become, um, you know, celebrations of life but yeah, yeah. that are about the person's story as opposed to a gathering of the congregation, just as everyone remembers their baptism when there is a baptism in the congregation, the congregation needs to find a way to funerals and realize that the person in the coffin and yeah, let's, let's bring the dead into the, yeah. into the funerals. That's part of it. But the person in the coffin, that's where we are headed. Like, there's a reality check there that isn't just a, it's not morbid. It's not just because the whole context of a good funeral service is that it's focusing on the death and the resurrection of Christ and, and our mortality in that context. So I think there's other ways to do that. Um, I spent and brought my seminary students to talk with a lot of different funeral directors and things like that. And, we talked actually about how pastors and funeral directors can work together more, more closely and how even people in the congregation can learn more um, about how to connect with those who are dying. But those are a few, a few thoughts I have on that. You know, one of the things that I'm, I, I try to do as a pastor is, is uh, direct people away from calling the, the funeral service of their loved one a, a quote, celebration of of life and helping them to, to recapture the, the appropriateness of the term of mm -hmm. funeral service. And it seems to be a, a uniquely American thing uh, to try to rid a funeral service of any sadness and such a strange counterintuitive and, and for the family, at least a cruel thing uh, to do 
to them, even though I think we've gotten so used to this that even families are saying, no, I don't want to grieve at, at, at the funeral. How do we help them say, no, 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 no. Um, and obviously we, we don't want to come heavy handed because they've been so shaped by this idea that a funeral shouldn't be a funeral. But how do we help them say, no, no, it's br bring your sadness to that time. Uh, here's why you need to grieve for that. And, and to and specifically, how to say that to Christian people who are under the mistaken notion that it's not right to grieve. How do you, how do you talk to them about that? I think it ties into this bigger story about what the good news of Jesus Christ is. And um, I, I still remember uh, a member of our congregation who I was, I was praying with him in the sanctuary, and it was, he had been married to his wife over 50 years and it would have been his next anniversary and he is just weeping and he, but he's so embarrassed because he feels like, you know, everybody says she's in a better place, but I want her here. Mm -hmm. And so he felt like he actually wasn't being a good Christian <laughs> to use that phrase because, yeah. you know, a good yeah. Christian thinks that it's, elevated to glory with, with no loss with, you know, it's, it's just all gain, but that's not, that's not the kind of story that we are caught up in. Once you move into biblical ways of talking about our resurrection hope, they push us so deeply into just the reality of our mortal bodies. Um, and of, of, of death. Um, one thing I discovered really in, um, in some new ways as I was researching and writing in the book is how important the stories of infertility in the Old Testament and barren wombs are to the sort of ground of resurrection hope because if you know, God's promise hangs on the line at certain times, if wombs are not filled because of God's promise to Abraham. And so like it's these very concrete bodily realities that relate to pain and our mortal limits and the cutting off that does happen um, through death. It's, it's only then that we actually taste the sweetness of resurrection hope. The gospel is not a promise that, like we look forward to the the day when death will have no no sting, <laughs> but that day has not yet come, <laughs> and so we live in hope in that direction. There's there's a number of ways to to get at that. Baptism is connected to death as well as to coming to life, and um, um, to get at that story. But I think if if people can understand that. Um, it's Christ's death and resurrection, not simply as a substitutionary once for all sacrifice. It's definitely as that, but also Christ as the pioneer, as the Hebrew, book of Hebrews talks about, who goes before us in death. Um, like if you want to know that Christ, <laughs> this time is 
an opportunity to enter into that. I mean, Jesus wept for Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to be given life again. Um, I, I reserve the term resurrected for those who are brought to life in new life and will not die again, but still Jesus wept. And so there, there is a loss that's inherent to the gospel message and um, what it means to belong to Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen King. One of the chapters in your book, Todd, you talk about, I, I think it's a sort of a, something of a disagreement between yourself oh, yeah, and your wife yeah. or an ongoing discussion uh, about uh, is death an enemy or death a friend? And you, you, I think in your earlier book, Rejoicing in Lament, a great book. I actually used that in my Doctrine of God class at Grove City College, and it blows the students' minds, the oh, wow. non-impassibility uh, in that. But you say that when you wrote uh, Rejoicing in Lament, you, you very much had the kind of, laser focus on death as the enemy, which I'm kind of broadly, but very sympathetic to myself. Mm -hmm. But you add this interesting nuance about death as as friend. And I know uh, my my own father's death uh, from cancer, that there came a point there where sort of death is a release from suffering. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and also, you, you bring out a biblical theological dimension because it's not coincidental that your wife, you're a systematician and your wife is an Old Testament scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tease that out a bit for us uh, or show, you know, explain to us how that's kind of nuanced your thinking? I think there were a couple of things going on. Um, I think I first had to take that seriously on a experiential level, the idea of death as a friend. When I went to talk to um, a retirement center that had quite thorough discussions of rejoicing and lament. I mean, they had these weekly discussion groups discussing each chapter for like an hour or wow. something. And then um, at the end of it, they wanted me to come and they had these questions. And the biggest question was, why do you speak so much about death as an enemy? Our biggest fear is that we're going to live too long. So, you know, I asked, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? And it's like, I mean, they feel their bodies crumbling. They, they realize the extent of their mortal frame. And it's not at all like they were wanting to take their own lives or something like that. But they didn't want to live forever like this. <laughs> um, and a lot of them also had the sense of like, well, you know, death would be an enemy if it came to my grandson or my granddaughter or even my son or daughter, but not, not to me. Mm. And um, when I went back to this theologically and scripturally, I found that there was really a trajectory of scripture that Irenaeus picks up on quite, quite nicely. Um, And in the book, I draw upon Irenaeus, though I kind of add some, some additional biblical support I found (laughs) for this, for this view, but it fits with certain biblical themes about a certain notion of completion when someone dies full of years. Also, for Irenaeus, there's this sense in which the whole of the Christian life is one of, of growth, especially when we encounter suffering. And so the, the very process of dying is framed as a kind of test and an opportunity 
for growth and for trust in God. And so, in a sense, the process of dying can be a tool that God uses in our discipleship. So, in, in that sense, death can be a friend. Um, but then there's this also this other um, reality, which I think sometimes we really lose track of, which um, Augustine, the, the mature thought of Augustine is deeply into. I mean, it's interesting because in earlier Augustine, he accepts a view of death that um, just sees it more as like a natural occurrence in nature or, or something like that. Um, but as his thought matures, he really thinks that death is inherently this violent rendering of body and soul, that it's, it can't be explained. It's this deep wound and, and enemy, um, which, of course, Christ and his redemption um, will overcome. Um, but he has that sense very, very strongly of death as an enemy. And so in the debates, it really is friendly debates between my wife and I with this. That's but, good. Um, That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it ends up with laughter on one point or another. But um, I, I ended up with thinking that, well, maybe a way to think of this is that all deaths right now in our fallen state are on a kind of continuum. There's a sense in which there's some people I know who, you know, they live until their final days and in, in service to God and even see this process of losing one capacity as after another as an opportunity to share in Christ and his suffering. Um, and then there are other deaths which seem to be farther on the Augustinian continuum where the death hits and just seems to make no sense whatsoever with what we thought God was doing with their lives. Some of the strange thing about talking about death and this continuum is that we don't have control over where <laughs> our death will be, <laughs> when it will happen, and so forth. And so um, I ended up really with the sense that we need to be aware of both sides of these. Um, God is the Lord over life and death in, in both, and God can use and does use the process of dying for his purposes. Um, and yet, we need to always keep in mind this Augustinian sense that um, these purposes may be totally and utterly hidden from us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that it is right and proper for us, you know, when we have the death of a loved one just to, just to throw up our hands to God and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. This is a wound. Um, but this is, you know, the final enemy to be, to be overcome. God, you're, you're a dad, um, as you've mentioned, and, and you said something earlier that I thought was very moving. You, you talked about the fact that people who are dying love to be around children, which I thought was a, a really profound statement that really makes a lot of sense hearing it uh, from you. How, how would you counsel people to talk to children about mortality, to talk to children about death? And I'm thinking children 12 years and younger. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what's been your own experience with that and how would you counsel people to talk to children about this? Yeah. My suggestion would be um, to talk with them about it whenever you can in an age appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not like, you know, they hit the age of nine or even seven or something and you sit them down for this big one hour talk <laughs> right. and you're like, okay, there's this thing called death. Right. I mean, usually there's a lot of opportunities um, with, with kids with, when you're attentive. So, you know, we have a lot of pets in our house. Um, mm-hmm. My son especially is really into fish and he has a lizard and we have a cat and a dog. And, you know, whenever one of those pets dies, there's questions that come up and right. usually we have a prayer and, you know, he helps to um, come up with like what we're going to, do for the pet, whether bury the pet or whatever. Sometimes he even like develops a little, a little song that he'll sing. And often there's questions and just welcome those questions and be okay with the fact when they ask questions and you don't know the answer. But, you know, one of the dramatic ways in which um, our uh, Western culture has changed in the last century is that, you know, children used to have the experience of being around people who were dying very yeah. often. I mean, many people, uh, Atul Gawande does a nice job of this in his book, Being Mortal, and talking about how it would have been an ordinary experience for a child, you know, under the age of 12, like you say, growing up, to be basically a hospice worker for a grandparent or even a parent or a brother or sister in their home growing up and deaths, you know, occurred um, in the home. And now death is almost like pornography or something yeah. in the sense that it's, it's used by the media or by, you know, television or movies as something to, you know, have a dramatic plot line or to push a particular agenda or things like that. But it's the ordinary daily experience of death and dying that we need to expose our kids to. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you need to do, you know, expose them to inappropriate movies or, sure. you know, anything like that. Um, if they will get exposed to things like that, and that's not actually, I think, very helpful for what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is to make them as aware as possible that, there are people in our congregation who are dying. Maybe your grandparents or a great grandparent, you know, they're living and they're going to die and just take the questions um, when they come up. You don't need to force the questions with kids. The kids generally have a ton of questions and, um, but just welcome them and, you know, treat it like something that you don't have to get super anxious about because, um, it's precisely when we think death just happens on the news headlines or in the movies that death doesn't really happen to us in our ordinary life. It's the ordinary life part that we need to tie in as, as parents and I think as members of a congregation. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for coming on the program, Todd. I feel we barely scratched the surface of what is a very, many ways, very difficult, very profound, but also 
for every single one of us, existentially very important topic. We are all mortal, and this is an issue that we will all face both in our experience and in our own lives at, uh, at some point. So I want to thank you for coming on the program. I want to commend your book, uh, The End of the Christian Life, How Embracing Our Mortality Frees Us to Truly Live, to our audience. Uh, in fact, we have uh, a couple of these to... Uh, giveaway. So if you'd like a chance to win a copy of Todd's book, please go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can enter a draw with, uh, with the prize as a copy of this book. If you don't win the book, please buy a copy anyway. It's full of wisdom, and I think it's an extremely thought-provoking text, a, a great companion volume to Rejoicing in Lament. While you're visiting our website, uh, please uh, feel free to make a donation. We are a uh, listener-supported podcast. All that remains for me is to thank you for listening and to look forward to being with you next time. Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath Keep me in your heart for a while If I leave you it doesn't mean I love you any less Keep me in your heart for a while when you get up in the morning and you see that crazy sun, keep me in your heart for a while. There's a train leaving nightly called when all is said and done. Keep me in your heart for a while. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. With your help, we continue to uphold solid biblical doctrine and equip Christians to do the same. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word. With your prayerful support, we continue sharing that word with those who are lost and encouraging the church with solid biblical teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of hope that increases our joy and changes lives. Please prayerfully consider supporting this proclamation of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us. You can make a gift online at alliancenet.org support. That's alliancenet.org support. Or call 1-800-488-1888.